Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What you're doing down here, you shawny man. A great philosopher once said, a man's character is not judged after he celebrates a victory by what he does when his back is against the wall. Well, I'm sorry, WWE legend John Cena, but for once, I'm going to have to disagree <laughs> with you. After watching league titles celebrated in various countries over the weekend, I can't help come to the conclusion that a victory celebration is precisely the right time to judge a man's character. Hello and welcome to Monday Second Captain's Podcast, football podcast that is. Hi, fellas. Hey, Hello, how are you? Let's start in Rotterdam, oh. where 36-year-old Dirk Kout, captain of Feyenoord, scored a hat-trick to fire his team to their first Dutch era the Vizzy title it's, it's amazing I mean, years. He, he became I think the third Feyenoord player to score more than 100 goals and again he ended on 102 I guess um, with the hat trick he became the second oldest player to score in the Dutch league after Johan Cruyff and yeah as you mentioned though, he won the league he won the league and he did a lot of great stuff and how did he celebrate? By sinking to his knees in thanks to all the great people around him at the club, showing the usual Dirk County type of and then and, and he celebrated sort of at the head of his enormous teeming family, like like the leader of a gothic tribe, you know, a, a gothic tribal chieftain, Dirk Cout, all of these little blonde <laughs> Cout's uh, gambling uh, behind him in the meadow. It was absolutely incredible. I mean, G- g- gambling as opposed to gambling. Gamble, gambling, gambling, yeah. gambling. These young five-year-olds weren't gambling on the, I don't think, the match. I don't think they were gambling. I mean, it, it was uh, it was sensational. I thought to myself, "Geez, you man, Dirk Head really has it cracked, doesn't he?" Over to Lisbon, Ken. Oh yeah, where Benfica were busy winning another Portuguese championship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their defender Eliseu. I can only I can only Eliseu, assume yeah. Eliseu is the alpha male of the group because he showed these qualities by riding a moped around the dressing room with the number 36 painted on it, mm. indicating a 36th title for the club. Because that's just the kind of guy he is. <sighs> and he's finally, a crazy bastard. He's a crazy uh, bastard. Oh, no, I, I saw the clip. Speaking of which, Murph, finally the English Midlands on Friday night, where Chelsea became Premier League champions once again, and Diego Costa marked the occasion by being absolutely insane. When he wasn't busy simulating sex acts, he was using Lucas State Sport to try to wipe champagne out of his eyes. 
If he wasn't, <laughs> if he wasn't physically dragging his manager out of a press conference, he was threatening journalists with a fire extinguisher. Most of the journals present seemed united in one thought. Antonio Conte's... <laughs> my laptop, yeah. And second to that, Antonio Conte's ability to restrain this maniac is his single greatest achievement this season again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I find it amazing. He, he is... He, he does act pretty crazy. I mean, it's kind of beyond the usual, I'm a sort of, you know, wacky guy. Cheeky chappy. Uh, exactly. I, I'm, I'm that sort of madcap antics type of person in, into some kind of further on than that realm where people are a little bit freaked out oh, by what's going unnerved. on. Very unnerved. Everyone sounded vaguely, not the even vaguely, Sam, quite the, intimidated. The yeah. Sam Wallace account of that um, post-match huddle with Conte. Conte had done the post-match press conference but then was dragged out of it by Costa and I think David Luiz yeah. but then came back because he they had agreed that they were going to do a Sunday newspaper briefing the games obviously on Friday night uh, and so Conte came back with Steve Atkins Chelsea press officer and and then <laughs> the account of what follows is hilarious I mean Costa just comes in sort of wild eyed shouting random English words uh, I am Diego or Diego is number one Diego loves you. Uh, and then begins sort of doing chin-ups on some nearby scaffolding, uh, apparently just to... The energy hasn't quite left his body. Yeah. That's it. He wants to get back and continue partying. I mean, all the photos you can see him with his beer. Although Costa has a beer after every game, I believe. It's one of his things. Hopefully he, it doesn't always go... It doesn't always go like that for Diego. Oh, and it's one beer. Diego Costa is able to handle one beer. One ice-cold bottle of beer. <laughs> After each game, he just he gets it. It's one of his things that he uh, needs. Our World Service members got one hell of a powerful player's chair last week with Richie and Ogwin. Just hated life, hated my existence. And, and people then wanted to talk to me about it and I didn't like speaking to people. I didn't want to answer the phone. Sky TV rang up, Jeff Shrees went, come on over and do a game and, and I wouldn't go. And then eventually I went to the airport and came home and told them there was a problem with the flight and didn't get on the flight. You know, it, it was just, I got into a real negative place for some... As in you made that up, that yeah, there was a problem. Yeah, Why absolutely. didn't you go? I just didn't want to be near a football ground. I didn't feel I belong. I felt an outsider. But I would still be very wary of the new modern young player looking at me going, who the hell does he think he is? If you would have kept your head down and kept out of sight. I, I would still do it to a point today. The worst it got for me, I retired in the first week of September. By December, I had contacted a solicitor. I had started writing a will. I lived in a house with a swimming pool in the backyard. My plan was to jump in there and not jump and not get out. I was living with a friend and a girlfriend, both Irish, and I somehow manipulated my girlfriend into moving back to Dublin while staying together as a couple. Obviously, I wasn't going to discuss her with her what was going on in my head. And exactly like what you said earlier, I just hated my life and I, 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 I had absolutely no concept of how things would get better than they were. Yeah, pretty amazing stuff there from Richie and from Niall. Thanks so much for all the reaction that's come in from our World Service members to that one. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, it's Friday's Incredible Players Chair episode. Niall Quinn and Richie Sadler, so you can get it whenever you fancy at secondcaptains.com or on your podcast player of choice. If you're listening today as a non-member, 
The only way you can hear that interview or any of our World Service programming is to join up. You will get access to all our archive, including all the past players' chairs and obviously our daily shows as well. Five euro plus VAT a month for independent commercial-free programming. By the way, that was a little bit of a taster of the emotional and at times heartbreaking account that the two uh, that the two boys gave of how they came to grips with the end of their footballing careers. So there was that element too. But it's pretty funny in parts. Here's Quinny talking about playing full forward for Eadstown Junior C's, I believe, in Kildare. Murph, that's uh, against Salins, mm-hmm. a match in which he was awarded three penalties. I got brought down for the first penalty. I looked around and everyone had gone back about 50 yards, so I knew I had to take the penalty. Anyway, I scored. It was a young lad in goal for Salins. And I scored the three penalties. The last penalty... Their umpire threw the green flag at me and told me to get back to England, you diving bastard. Right? Right. So, so that was a, you know, the, the, the memory in my head. And I got up and scored a third penalty. The final whistle went and there was a little bit of pushing and fighting and shoving going on. And, and I, as I would always do, swerved that, looked for somebody to say hard luck to and I saw their goalkeeper. And so I went over to him and I said, listen, Jesus, hard luck there, young fella there. I'd say you'd like to have saved one of them. And uh, he went... Uh, Fuck off, you prick. You wouldn't take one against Spain. <laughs> <laughs> Legitimate comeback from the goalkeeper again. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. You've got to use whatever ammo you have in your head there, I guess. Yeah. Or just take your beating. Uh, yeah, like, come on. What happens on the field surely must stay on the field. You know, it, uh, a moment like this, you need to be the bigger man. Shake hands. You'll be telling the story, as I said on Friday. You'll be telling the story in the pub for the rest of your life anyway. Why, why ruin it? With, you know, petty insults to one of Ireland's greatest ever sports people. Secondcaptains.com for all the details on how to hear that and all the other players' chair episodes and everything else on the World Service. Right now, Ken is going to report on a little bit of sport for you, I guess. So, yeah, we, we were talking about Diego Costa on, and I guess that there's a good chance that, that he's about to play his last game for Chelsea. Um, you know, there seems to be a pretty... It's a reasonable possibility that he's going to move to China uh, and that this might actually be quite welcome from Chelsea's point of view. Uh, not that Diego Costa has, has underperformed this season. Actually, he's one of the main reasons why they won the league, especially with his form in the first half of the season. Um, but if they do manage to sell him to China for an enormous transfer fee, it could help with their plans this summer, which seem to be on a scale that we haven't seen at Chelsea for some time. You know, they're talking about spending two hundred million pounds on transfers. Well, they've still got the Oscar money burning a hole in their bank account there, so that's sixty odd million to start with. Well, this is the thing. I mean, Chelsea are in a position now where they've okay, they've won the title, but they've they've kind of overperformed to do that. In, in a way, like um, you know, Manchester City, Manchester United have been spending more money than them on players, on wages, and on transfers, and you know, Chelsea are are behind them in terms of. There's certainly a long way behind Manchester United in terms of turnover, you know, available cash from football. You know, if you if you leave aside this special uh, this special relationship they've got with the Chinese league, which which is looks like it's helping them out a bit, but of course, you know, they need to kind of invest this money in the team. I mean, it's that question of do you uh, strengthen when you're already strong to try to, you know, if they're going to compete over the next couple of years, they're going to need to do this because it does look as though this summer is going to be. A, just a gigantic summer of transfer madness. It's a bit more than the usual strengthening when you're strong 
idea, though, isn't it? It's the fact that they're actually probably not strong enough for the Champions League and Premier League. Yeah, they're not. So they're, they're strengthening. If they were just in the Premier League again next year, you'd say that's what they're doing. Just add one or two players in and you'll be fine. Whereas they actually have to... that They would not have done anything that they did in the Premier League this year, you wouldn't have thought, with the same squad and, Premier, and Champions League football. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so they, they, they're not in a position where they have two players in every position or two players that Conte is happy with in every position. Um, so the you know the names that they're talking about are Lukaku, famously a Chelsea supporter, famously a former Chelsea player. <laughs> um, uh, but obviously he's learned his trade. Uh, Lukaku, Alexis Sanchez. You know, San- Sanchez also uh, apparently interested in him from Bayern Munich. I mean, maybe they figure he can do what Ribery has been doing, that type of uh, position. And I'm sure Arsenal would rather sell him there than Chelsea. Uh, Virgil van Dijk. Uh, Timue uh, Bakayoko, um, Alexandro, David Alaba. I mean, talking about some big names there. I mean, someone like Alaba, you know, a couple of years ago, you would have thought, well, there's no way he'll be a Bayern for his career. And although things haven't gone quite so well for him, certainly this season. Um, so maybe they would be interested in letting him go. But I, mean, I think it would be absolutely phenomenal in the uh, Premier League. So it looks... Uh, it looks as though. I mean, the thing is that Chelsea will have kind of been looking around and taking the general temperature uh, of what is likely to happen around Europe. And when you look at it, <clears throat> Manchester United are going to spend a, another fortune. They've got. They're they're going to have. Um, they're they're going to have to replace Zlatan and and Wayne Rooney effectively. I mean, they need a a player for that position. They can obviously afford to you know break the world transfer record if they want to, and they can certainly pay a world record salary. You're talking. Someone is going to arrive who's very expensive, and the thing is that these deals have the effect of making everyone else more expensive, even unrelated players. In between, you know, well, the point is that um, I mean, this is I was just over the weekend looking at uh, Ferran Soriano's book. Remember, you know Ferran Soriano. He's a guy. He, he's running Manchester City at the moment. Yep. He was previously at Barcelona, and he did a book in the uh, after he was out of football. Well, he was he left Barcelona and he was out of football for a little while and then he came back into football with City. But he wrote a book where he was talking about, um, you know, how, essentially how uh, how I achieved the business miracle of turning Barcelona into, you know, this amazing force that you see today, you know. And and a lot of it is, is a fairly standard kind of business book. Um, you know, all the, he's talking about little case studies where someone came up with something ingenious. You know, how did we do? How did we do it at Barcelona? You know, well, we had two choices. When we took when we took over, you know, the expenses were out of control. The club was losing money. Our revenue hadn't managed to keep up with Manchester United. You know, we'd been level with them in '96, and we were about half their level in 2003. Well, there was two ways we could have done it. Number one, the sensible approach: get on top of the expenses, cut everything back. You know, cut our cloth to measure. Uh, hopefully you get things uh, ship-shape after a couple of years. Boring. Number two, revolution. Mm, that's more <laughs> like it. What about if we spent more and earned more? Uh, so anyway, they, they went for the revolutionary uh, approach, and uh, the results are there for all to see. But one of the interesting things about I mean, he talks a bit about their um, behavior in the transfer market. One of the interesting things about it was how much attention they paid to the general tenor of what was happening in the market in terms of are, is this going to be a summer when loads of teams are spending big or is it going to be one of those sort of digging in summers where people don't go you know that crazy that affects our decision as to whether we 
try to do our transfer business early in the window or whether we leave it to see how things pan out. Because if it's going to be a high spending summer and there's going to be a lot of big deals happening, that suddenly massively increases the cost of all the players we want to buy, even if other teams aren't bidding for our players. So he gives examples like, say, for instance, Real Madrid signed Pepe and they paid 30 million for Pepe. Everyone is going, oh, no, I can't believe what they've done. Thanks a lot, Real Madrid and Pepe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for this. Because what they've done See, is... the catchphrase, what they, Sorry. <laughs> what they've done is anchor the price for a, a decent central defender. I mean, Real Madrid are saying, well, we bought the world's greatest central defender. Everyone else is like, well, you have bought a central defender. Uh, he is. He, he looks like he could be quite good. Is he the world's best? We don't know. But he is 30 million. And if you spend 30 million on a central defender... And Barcelona then want to buy a central defender. It doesn't matter. It's a different player. He's not. Uh, he's coming from a different club than Pepe. He's got nothing to do with Pepe, apart from the fact that every club now wants to charge Barcelona thirty million for the central defender they want. Uh, the central defender they wanted in that instance was uh, uh, Gabriel Milito, uh, who they eventually um, signed for you know nearly nearly twenty million euros, but more than they would have otherwise had to pay. I think Chelsea are looking at it now and thinking. This is going to happen this summer. Sorry, I'm just not 100% clear. Was Soriano saying that if there are going to be big money moves, massive money moves, you do your business early before that all happens? Yes. Okay, sorry. Because because once the big money starts flying around, everybody gets a, everybody thinks, wow, transfer inflation has happened. Mm. It's already happened. Add 25% to the price. Add 50%. Like if Manchester United signed Griezmann for like 90 million, that's hypothetically. I'm not saying Griezmann is. I mean, there's plenty of doubt over whether anything like that will happen. But imagine they did. Then Chelsea are going to Everton. We want Lukaku. What do Everton say? The question becomes less whether he's worth 90 million and more. Well, is he as good as Antoine Griezmann? Yeah, it's like why you know it, why should we sell him to you for 60 million? Maybe they would have. Hmm. But with that figure of 90 million in everybody's heads, <laughs> yeah. it suddenly it's like, well, hang on a second, you know. You want to you want to get a top striker. You're going to have to play. You're going to have to pay the going right for a going rate rather for a big club who wants to buy a top striker. It's not really so much about the player. It's about the buyer and what they can afford and what people are already paying. So <clears throat> if Chelsea want to avoid that, uh, one way of doing it is to basically just start working on this. Or, well, I'm sure they've been working on it already, but try and get all this done now because I think it's going to be a big. Uh, it's going to be a very big summer. I mean, the you know certainly the Manchester clubs can't be happy with the way this has worked out this season. You know, I mean, in in the Premier League, uh, we were speaking. We will be speaking to Miguel and John Bruin. Miguel was at the Tottenham uh, Manchester United game, but obviously, you know, Manchester United mathematically ruled out of the top four, which is a bit of a disaster for them. So everything now comes down to the game against Ajax next week. And Mourinho's comments after the game were. Uh, or stuff like you know, uh, he's he's really justifying his decision. He, he's presenting their failure as his decision, as a, he's rather than he's he's trying to reframe failure, which is what it is. You know, coming coming uh, probably sixth in the Premier League is is abject failure, considering the resources at his disposal. But he's he's presenting it as a choice that they've made rather than just what the best they could do, uh, and now saying, uh, we had to make that decision. When people say we gambled, we didn't gamble, we didn't choose Europa League, we had to do it, uh, because 
if I have Ashley Young, Luke Shaw, Marcus Rocco, Ibrahimovic, Tim, Fossi Mensa, if I have these guys, I can rotate. I can go for every match. When I have 14, 15 players, I can't do it. It's as simple as that. We know what we're doing. For us, it's more important to win titles than to finish top four, etc., etc. We know that if we lose the final, we will not play in the Champions League, but we fight for titles. Probably other clubs finishing in the top four, probably they would like to be in our position to try to fight for a title. Pretty sure they're all pretty happy to be in the top four rather than having to play Ajax to get the same prize. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, like in a, in a week's time or in two weeks' time after the Europa League final, then, you know, would you rather be in our position? You, that question becomes a little bit more complicated. But as of right now... As of right now... Why roll the dice? A bird in the hand is better than a bird in the bush. That's Because that's yeah, the situation that's we're looking at here. Yeah. They've got a bird in the hand. Mourinho's got a bird in the bush. This bird, maybe it's a turkey. Maybe the bird that that that's you know Manchester City and Liverpool are holding is just a, a duck. Maybe, but at the end of the day, it's the same basic idea, except that they've got theirs and Mourinho's still got to nail that down. Is he not talking about the last few weeks though? It's not as though he's saying at the start of the season I took this decision that we were going to accept sixth place in the Europa League final. It's the way it's developed. They've they've stuck in the Europa League, and in the last few weeks they have had injuries and they've prioritised. So, in, in essence, they kind of have chosen the Europa League in the last maybe three weeks. Uh, well, it's in that case, I think it's been a it's been a poor decision because I mean their their results. Uh, I mean, for, first of all, that we've we've talked incessantly, and so I don't want to you know go over it all again about the fact that they have got a very good squad. Do, do, do you think Chelsea have a better squad than they do? They have squad, probably not. No, no, I don't think so. Um, so they've got a very powerful squad. What I'm saying is that although it, and everybody is going to get injuries, I just think that they happen to be better equipped to handle uh, handle these injuries than most other teams. And they haven't really succeeded, uh, or at least they've used it a lot as an excuse uh, for poor results. But I mean, the thing is that when you look at their recent results, when you look at the results of the teams ahead of them, um, they could have caught up. You know what I mean? They, 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 we were talking even just the other week. Um, I mean, they've, lo- they've lost their last two in the league. I mean, they win those two matches and they're, you know, they're in the top four. I mean, it, it's that it was that close. You know what I mean? That's what. We're, so, so I think it wasn't as though, the, it, you know, in, in February or March, they knew they faced a hopeless task and there was now no point because they couldn't catch up. It wasn't like that. They were actually in contention right up until the last couple of weeks when they've just fizzled out completely and he's saying this is a choice well you know but but the reason I'm saying those teams will be happy to be ahead of them is that okay the, it would be good to win a title and, and Manchester United players are going to get a bonus I'm sure for winning the Europa League that will be in their contract beforehand but the more important one is what they get for playing in the Champions League if they don't play in the Champions League it's going it cuts everybody's money by a huge amount there is literally millions of pounds riding on the outcome of this game for individual Manchester United players I, I'm absolutely serious. And when you look at Manchester City, they're in the same position. That's why they would rather, you know, every player wants to win a trophy. You, could, you saw Mkhitaryan, um, Mkhitaryan put up a photo of himself as a kid, I think in the Armenian National Stadium, saying, I've always dreamed of playing in a, in a European final. I could only dream when I was a kid and now I'm there. You know, let's go. Let's go, Manchester. And that's absolutely true. You know, players... Uh, would love the chance to play in these games to win these to win these finals is a great experience for any player but if you're looking at maybe taking a quarter of your wages as a cut 
for next season because you're not in the Champions League, that focuses the mind a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, that's why those players would rather, I'm sure, ultimately tick the box saying, yes, we're already there, rather than, ooh, it all comes down to this game against uh, Ajax. Yeah, not bad motivation, though. I know there's a lot of... if. If players do need to be further incentivized, they can't be incentivized anymore. Yeah. This is one of those games where you're going to see everybody exploding off the subs bench. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not going to have any of that players sort of sitting there. You know, uh, Rashford scores and the camera cuts to Wayne Rooney and he's looking a little bit sad. No, you're not you're not going to see that. You're going to see all in it together. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, when you when you think, remember Xabi Alonso in his suit running down to the corner flag, I've literally just made a million and a half euros. <laughs> thank, thank you, Gareth Bale. I, I really just want to kiss you right now. Um, that's the kind of uh, situation they're, they're uh, looking at. You don't want to be the one to miss the fatal penalty. I mean, I was thinking about these issues of bonuses and so on, because uh, I was writing about it uh, for the Irish Times this week. Um, and the, there's all kinds of interesting things when you start to look into it. Um, I mean, I've spoken, I've spoken to uh, speaking to Ian Lynham, who we spoke to before on the uh, on the program a few months ago, and uh, you know, he certainly wouldn't be a fan of this idea of it's something that Manchester United do, but Manchester City don't, of giving players bonuses for scoring goals and things like that. Um, you know, we we know that United do it, we know that Liverpool do it. We saw the the contract, Firmino's contract, you know, was leaked by football leaks. Um, the book instantly came out in, in German. Um, I don't know if they're going to do an English translation. I guess they probably will at some point. Um, there's little bits, uh, like the source of it. They don't say who this guy is, but apparently he's you know, a young... The, the bit about him is like he, a young Portuguese guy uh, who now flits around Eastern Europe. He lives this kind of Julian Assange or Jason Bourne-type nomadic existence. Well, not Julian Assange, isn't as nomadic as he used to be. But um, goes around Eastern Europe, you know, trying to stay one step ahead of his enemies. Um, it's a bit Snowden-y, apart from that it's not, you know, the NSA and the CIA and, you know, the, the, the entire American security state that's hunting him, but rather a bunch of pissed off football agents and football players. <laughs> you know, uh, Mina Raiola, I'm sure you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be... Uh, stuck in the lift with Mino if he realized that you were the guy who'd leaked the football <laughs> documents. You know, he'd, he'd definitely give you a, a serious ticking off. You know, but generally, I'm not sure if the stakes for this guy are, are quite as high. Well, you know, it is, a, it is a kind of a dirty business. You know, I'm sure some people involved have some dirty connections. This idea, though, that it's the wrong way to go about it, it that I've read a lot about it over the week. A lot of people are making a similar point that if you incentivize somebody to score goals, and obviously they're gonna, that could potentially come at the cost of what the team is supposed to be doing. So you know, if, if you're about to get into it, and there's all these, Zlatan has it. Who else has it? Was, was a Liverpool player over the weekend? Firmino. Firmino. So th- these guys have it that yeah, you, you get higher bonuses. You get into a bracket of say five to ten goals or ten to fifteen goals. Yeah, and your and bonus ratchets up. Each of your bonus bonus ratchets up. So you're talking about big, big money yeah. and decent money even for those guys once you're getting to pretty high levels. And I can understand the point. You're getting to goal number sixteen, and it's going to earn you a hundred grand. Do I pass? Yeah. Or do I take this difficult angled shot? Yeah. But that's always been there, especially for strikers. The goal bonuses are the oldest. I think they could could have been back back in the day, fifty six. Certainly in more in the last 20, 30 years, I'm sure it's pretty bog standard for strikers to have 
maybe not quite as specific as the way the contracts are built now, but generally just, yeah, an extra few hundred quid for scoring goals has always been around. So I don't really yeah. see why it's seeing such an issue now. I mean, what they're getting is, Firmino's currently, if he, if he scores a goal, it's worth a week's salary to him. You know, he's because he's between 10 and 15, so he gets 65 grand for a goal, and he gets 68 grand a week mm. is his basic wage. So it's kind of getting into a level. I mean, say, for instance... Yeah, they were never at that level. You know, you would generally have goal bonuses. They're, 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 and they still, they still have those kind of old-fashioned squad bonuses. Mm. Um, you know, most clubs will still have that. You know, if we if we win, we get an extra... Everyone gets a little bit of extra money or whatever. Um, but say, for instance, the Liverpool-West Ham game yesterday... It was an interesting moment in that at 4 0 when Origi had the ball. They're 4 0 up, just like 12 minutes to go. Origi gets into the box in the left side of the box. Sturridge is in the middle and there's nobody near him. And it's obvious what should happen. And Origi decides to have a go. Mm. And you think, well, you're just thinking, okay, well, maybe he thought he, maybe he just fancied himself there. Or maybe he thought 4 0, mm. might as well, you know bank and extra. I don't know what Rigi's goal bonus is. I haven't seen his contract, but you know, we know that he's he's But there are greedy players a... at every level in every five-a-side game you've ever played. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like there, there there's like you you can say that he was thinking goal bonus there or you can just say well, he's a striker. People are greedy, you know? People like scoring goals. Can I don't know if... how often you've played five-a-side football with Kieran Murphy, know, for example, but Let's just say in that shots to goal ratio maybe not great, but goal ratio can. In that particular situation, I think he might pretty have taken the Origi route there. So he speaks from experience. Goals, goals per game high. Shots per game very high. <laughs> goals per shots, yeah, well, negligible. Yeah, but but Origi decides to have have a shot, and I thought, wow, well, that's okay. I mean, we we you don't know why he made that decision. However, a player who is being who 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 comes out of the situation a lot better if he scores the goal rather than if Sturridge scores the goal is we we can see how the incentive is working. Yeah, but my point is this this was always there. It's been there for donkey's years, and nobody ever seemed to yeah, think of an issue before. Yeah, but it should, you know, uh, loads of things were loads of things were always there, Owen. I mean, it doesn't mean that that they should always be there. You know, if 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 something is a bad idea, then you change it, or you should. You shouldn't just stick to tradition just because. Well, this is the way it's always been. That's the way it's always going to be. Mm. For instance, with the Origi Sturridge situation, um, that goal at four 0 you think, oh, who cares? It's it's kind of one of those turkey shoot situations. Everyone's just trying to ha- you know score a goal. West Ham are just like Man, let's get over. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the season obviously ended for West Ham. It was it was an embarrassing day match. for West Ham. Yeah, it's not about that. Um, but you know that that goal goes in, and suddenly ch- things are a little bit different because Liverpool and Manchester City are then level on goal difference. Liverpool are ahead of Manchester City on goals scored, which means that if they end on the same points, Liverpool will be ahead of Manchester City. And there is a way that that can happen, which is that if both clubs draw their remaining matches, Liverpool draw their last match and Man City draw their last two, it's unlikely, but it is feasible. And if that happens, they will be level, and the difference between the two teams will be that non-goal. That didn't happen, and then the difference between those, the, the difference in that case, if Arsenal managed to win their last two games, will be a forty or fifty million yeah, pound difference. Yeah, I, I know. I just think it's very difficult to prove that that's what was in Origi's mind, as opposed to something more basic 
that Murph talks about a, a bit of glory scoring the goal uh, a young player who's trying to get, advance his career it, they're all going to be there regardless of whether or not you pick up an extra few grand for the goal you can't prove it of course not but you can take away the incentive for it to happen uh, because of the possibility that it might be happening for instance I remember uh, Luis Suarez scoring a goal in the last minute of a game was it Cardiff or Stoke I think I might be getting confused because I, if, unless I'm mistaken, Liverpool might have scored six goals in both of those away matches. But it was the situation was Suarez is running through on goal. He's actually on a hat trick. It's the last minute. They're already winning. Everyone knows the game is in the bag. Raheem Sterling runs all the way up next to him and is there for a tap in. But and Suarez is facing up to the goalkeeper instead of which he he does a couple of little feints and then scores past the goalkeeper himself. And Sterling looks really annoyed because it's obvious. If you want to be sure this is a goal, pass the ball. And Sterling is annoyed because he's run 50 yards as fast as he can. Suarez obviously doesn't care. And, okay, I don't know what his goal bonus was, whether he had a hat-trick bonus, uh, whether he just didn't care because it was the last minute and he thought he was going to score. But I can't help noticing that since Suarez plays for Barcelona, he didn't do that anymore. In fact, what I do see, and I saw it just over the weekend, is a lot of... uh, There was a very similar situation in the weekend game. Barcelona... I can't even remember who who the set of chumps was that they were playing. But Las Palmas was it? It may it may have been. To be honest, I I, I don't know. Uh, I didn't and you watch, don't care. Ken. I didn't watch the <laughs> I didn't watch the game, but I did see the goals. Uh, and the first goal was Suarez setting up Neymar, and but it was in, it was a very similar situation. Suarez is in. He's one on one with the goalkeeper. Neymar is free to his right. Passes to Neymar. Barcelona don't pay goal bonuses. They give you a bonus only if you. The, the the way they're and we we know this from Neymar's contract also one of the leaked uh, documents but he doesn't get any bonuses for things that he does on the field particular things he gets bonuses for winning trophies he gets bonuses for being in the for playing games if you play sixty percent of the games you're automatically in a higher bracket all the bonuses are like are, are doubled I think if if you play less than sixty percent of the games. You get fifty percent of the bonuses of the of the top guys. So the, so the idea is reward the the best players who are playing most of the matches, and then the other guys they also get a bit of the action. Like I mean, if 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 you were sitting on the bench all season for Barcelona, they win the Champions League. You get like six hundred grand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty good, but like you don't get the the full whack is that you would get if if you were if you'd played most of the games. Uh, the Neymar will get bonuses for things like signing. Or gets paid for ridiculous stuff like he signs, you know, uh, Panini stickers, Neymar Panini cards or whatever, and he gets like a ridiculous amount of money for that. You know, Ronaldo got what was Ronaldo got like a hundred and seventy thousand euros for signing a thousand cards with his face on. You know, this is the kind of like to in order to get Ronaldo to sit down and sign a thousand of these things, you need to give him one hundred seventy grand. So there's all there's loads of payments like that. Tr- you know, triggered by various things. They're making a ton of money, but they don't pay players to do particular things on the field because it warps what happens on the field, they think. All right. It was pay- Las Palmas who were indeed, Murph is right, they were the inanimate blobs of humanity who <laughs> wiped away by Barcelona at the weekend. Pay, pay players to succeed. If they succeed, they get paid more. If they're in the Champions League, they get paid more. An interesting point that, that um, Ian made when I was speaking to him was um, this, this notion of... Uh, for for a club like Manchester City, who are who are going to pay extra for, or when the club qualifies for the Champions League, everyone gets paid a percentage more. You know, everyone's money is just increased because you've qualified for the Champions League. 
Uh, and the idea is both, from the club's point of view, the idea is both in- incentivize them to do it, but also control our costs in the event that we don't do it. So if we don't make that, I mean, you know, as, as is going to be the case, or as could be the case with Manchester United, you know, they are, if they play in the Champions League, Adidas have to pay them more, you know, all the sponsors have to pay them more. But if they don't, then the income from those sources all goes down. So they have to build in some res- uh, responsivity, is that a word, in what they're paying the players as well. So if the players don't make it, then their money gets cut as well. So it kind of offsets. It means that the better you're doing, okay, you're paying the players more, but if you're doing worse, then also you get to cut back a little on the expense of paying the players. That's all. So, so they're the two things that the club is trying to do, incentivize and also respond to changes in, uh, in the level of success. The interesting thing is that when players are, players will obviously hear this in the contract negotiation, um, and they'll be like, okay, but they don't, <laughs> they don't uh, worry at all that the club isn't going to make the Champions League. They just assume they're going to get that money. You see what I mean? Mm. So they, they, it's not like they go, well, really, we mightn't even get that. You know, really, we've got to, we've got to, you know, forget about that money because that money isn't actually on the table. That's only if we do quite well. Mm. They assume that money is there. We, of course, we're going to qualify for the Champions League. I bet all the Manchester United players were thinking that. I'm sure that Paul Pogba was thinking, of course we'll get into the Champions League. You know, I, of course I will get this extra, you know, however much it is. Uh, so they don't discount the notion that they might, they, they don't think, oh, I might get that. It doesn't discourage them from signing is, is what I mean. So it's actually, it's a good thing from a club's point of view to be able to, to offer that. There is actually a condition, but it's like no one takes notice. <laughs> it's like the players aren't really reading the small print. And it doesn't discourage anyone from saying so. It's a good, it's a good thing for. There's no cost to a club from doing that. Yeah, even an agent would would uh, if he's bringing it up. If Mino Raiola wanted to mention that small print to Pogba, Pogba might be of a mind to say, "Listen, Mino, are you saying that I'm not good enough to fire this team into the Champions League?" Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not saying that, Paul. No, no, no. no let's get this deal done. We're not going to have that defeatism. But the point is that there there are other big clubs who don't do that, who 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 don't have this type of. Um, uh, you know, variable thing depending on whether you qualify or not. They'll like pay you almost everything that's on your in your contract, regardless of whether you win the league or don't make the Champions League or whatever. Um, and they probably should start doing that because it's like oh, it, it's it doesn't discourage players from signing for you. The players don't really take it into account until it happens, <laughs> and then and then you save a ton of money. You know what I mean? So it's so so a club from the point of view of a club uh, clauses like that are a good idea. That's it for today's edition of Ken's Sport and Sport. What have I become? My sweetest friend. I mean, at the time I thought that you were completely in the right. Everyone I know. But now I think. Goes away. Should have just played anyway. I'm, I'm surprised you're really asking that question. No, well, it doesn't matter really what you think. My empire of dirt. Yeah, you weren't there at the time. I will let you down. You weren't an international player. I will make you hurt. And you had the frustrations I had. If I could start again. You've not played at the international level. A million miles away. And you hadn't been accused of faking an injury, so. I will keep myself. What you think doesn't really matter. I would find
All right, we've got John Brune and Miguel Delaney ready to go. Miguel, you, uh, I read your piece today from White Hart Lane yesterday, and these these sort of farewell matches at Stadia can uh, be a mixed bag. I remember West Ham had a slightly all-over-the-place uh, closing ceremony, as it were, at Upton Park, or the bowling ground, as they insisted on calling it, towards the end of their time there last season. It seemed to go a lot, lot more smoothly at Spurs. You were impressed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was at West Ham as well. And that, um, I suppose, everyone can remember, as, a, as it was called, Cockney Geddon last year. But then, uh, even even with that, I suppose there was merit to it. In fact, the, the club had to celebrate its history. I think that's one of the things about yesterday. I think it was done very elegantly by Spurs. But also, like, in the middle of it, my dad actually texted me saying, clubs should close stadiums more often. It gives them a chance to have days like this. And there was a real feel for that at Spurs. You kind of, it, it's not the sort of thing that happens so often that we, we just, the entire the stadium, all the support, and all the former players kind of mixed together on a, on a day like that and really just kind of celebrate the club. But I think that there, there was a real nice to it, kind of that, that recognition of history as well. And even, I suppose, what struck as well, and it's something I always think kind of when we're in the job, we do, I suppose, where you're covering kind of some big stars and all that. And yet then in the press room, you'll suddenly see someone that you knew from your childhood, that not necessarily a great player, but just someone that was a, you know, a name as you were growing up. And there is a kind of a sudden thrill that you get in a way that you wouldn't. Who do you mean, you actually, Miguel? Robbie Keane? Well, not no, but, well, well, Robbie Keane actually, but he, he got one of the, one of the compared to some of the Spurs players there that had won massive trophies. I mean, Keane was a brilliant player for Spurs, but he didn't, wasn't necessarily there during their kind of most successful era. But yeah, he got one of the biggest cheers of the day, as did Ledley King, as did Vinnie Samways, uh, as did Dimitar Berbatov, actually, and Teddy Sheringham. And I, I, I suppose it, it just shows that, uh, you know, it, it's not just about the, the, the massive glory of clubs. It's, it's, it's not just about pe- people that have served the play. Like, it was interesting that the more, even the more prosaic names were kind of as, as celebrated as anyone else there. What, what, was there any, in, in, in this uh, maelstrom of emotion, <laughs> was there any feeling of regret, like Tottenham kicking themselves for somehow not managing to actually win the league this season? Um, not really, actually. Uh, Pochettino mentioned it afterwards in his um, in his press conference. I mean, the only thing I'm sorry for is that Chelsea could win the title. I think the general feeling is that I mean, I thought, I've seen a few other fans kind of uh, sneer a little bit. Uh, there they are celebrating, putting the pressure on. Uh, but I think there is a genuine pride in the fact that they were able to kind of go further than anyone else. And more, and whatever about not winning the league this season, the, the general mood around the club is that yes, we're we're in a very good place now. Uh, we, we they are going to push on to the next level and that the new stadium will help in this. Yeah, it was nice, John, of Manchester United to come along and play their role to perfection. Well, yeah, that's what Jose Mourinho does when uh, you're having a party. The person you always invite is Jose Mourinho. Always guaranteed there to sprinkle his own uh, stardust on the occasion. Um, actually, just watching a bit of the game yesterday... Um, United played their part in that occasion, didn't they? Um, just as they did last year at West Ham, actually. I don't know what it is about the fixture list that always puts Manchester United as the closing act on a stadium. Um, but just watch it. If you actually talk about the football, just watching that game, um, Manchester United had this number 11, Anthony Martial. Whatever happened to him? Um, but yeah, I mean, games like that are very strange when it's a sort of um, sub-friendly type of uh, occasion. Um, John, how is it a sub-friendly type of occasion? This result ruled them out mathematically of finishing the top four. I mean, they did have something real at stake there. 
Well, no, no well, of course, Ken, but not not in Mourinho world. Um, uh, the the ultimate manager of expectations and the manager of other people's expectations as well, such that Manchester United fans who travel to that game or watch it on TV had no expectation that their team was going to do anything in that game because the manager had written the game off. Um, and after the game was already complaining about the fact that his team had to complete the fixtures for the rest of the season, which um, is a new one on me. Um, and let us consider that if it was on the boot was on the other foot and another manager was talking about that in a game that affected Manchester United's chances of glory, you know, qualifying for the Champions League or, or a title or something like that, the person to go absolutely ballistic would be Jose Mourinho. But hey, we live in Jose Mourinho's world, don't we? What did you think of it, Miguel? Did you think they uh, were you surprised at how they um, maybe laid down and died a little bit on the occasion, or, or had you also uh, did you also know what to expect as you'd been listening to Jose Mourinho for the last while? Uh, I knew what to expect. Also, I'd seen team the day before, um, or the the likely team given what, what people had training in that, and I don't, I mean there is a, a real strong sense with uh, Mourinho United here, but well, we didn't fancy top four anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it really, the way, so, so when it suddenly became a bit more of a challenge and Europa League well, obviously presented more of a prospect, the way you just kind of completely diverted resources in that sense. I suppose there is a wider debate about yesterday's game, whether they maybe had more of a duty to perform. And also the fact that if you are Manchester United in a game like that, where you have a duty to actually provide some of the spectacle. Now, I suppose the flip side was they ended up actually being the perfect guests because in a game of such magnitude for Spurs, emotionally, United just offered a famous name to beat and to get that win that they wanted, but didn't really live up to that name at all in their actual performance. Um, but, I mean, this, this thing, when it, when it comes down to it, none of this will really matter if they win the Europa League, because Mourinho can just point to that. But it, it does at the moment, it does feel like a little bit of a calculated risk, not least also because of the issue of can a squad really go from, you know, three weeks of, you know, coasting and drifting and kind of preparing for one big game and then suddenly upping it? I mean, even even their opponents in the semi-final Celta Vigo had a, had a little bit of that problem in the first leg against United, where they they basically they they completely comp- prepared for the semi-finals since the quarter-final and then looked a little bit off the pace, a little bit kind of spooked almost by by that by that semi. Now United are obviously a more experienced team than that. But it is putting a lot on one big game, especially when Mourinho's approach to big games away from home this season has almost been a, 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 almost a neurotic insecurity about uh, about the prospect of getting of getting badly beaten. Miguel, let's talk about the champions. Where does this achievement by Chelsea rank in in their own Premier League title, in amongst Mourinho's and the other Premier League title triumphs that they've had? Is it as impressive as the rest, even more so? Um, well, to be fair, having just criticised Mourinho, to be fair, I I think that 0405 team was probably on a, on a level above any Premier League title winner, bar those that also won the Champions League, like United 08 or United 99. Um, so I don't think it was quite. They weren't quite as just awesome as that as that 0405 team. Just with the sense of the 0405 team, I suppose. I mean, that was peak Mourinho, and that was when he had that kind of defensive solidity matched with a real cutting edge. I mean, they're you're such a complete team. I don't think this side is too far off. Uh, I think the real merit is the fact that Conte took a team that re- I mean that was almost a little bit of a basket case last time. I think that's a little bit too easy to overlook, and it has been too easily overlooked um, this season. Just how how strange that Chelsea group was. I mean, you had the whole squad 
uh, their identity have been questioned, their very mindset has been questioned. Some of some of their fans have been calling them snakes the previous season. All of this going on, and even I noticed Gary Cahill said it today in uh, a mix zone interview we did with the Evening Standard, where he said after the Arsenal game, it would have been so easy to slip back in to the mindset of last season, and that suggested that it was something the players were thinking about. And I remember around that time. Conte brought her up a lot. He said, this is a team that finished 10th. We have to eradicate this. So he said it after the, I think it was after the Liverpool game, actually, 2-1 defeat, only for them to get beaten 3-0 again at Arsenal. So I think to lift up from that situation, and, and given that he basically got none of his own signings bar Marcus Alonso, I mean, I, I, obviously he realised Conte was a supreme signing, but given there's been so much talk about whether Guardiola has his own team, whether Mourinho has his own team, this isn't really Conte's team, but yet he's made the absolute best of it. And I think it is more than anything, I think it's a very good team, one of maybe top 10 Premier League champions. And um, I think also, it's particularly key this season, given this, this was set up as, or hyped as, the League of Star Managers. But it didn't really live up to hype in that sense, except for him. He, he and Pochettino, I suppose, surpassed expectation. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, John, that Miguel raises about managing somebody else's team. And, and let's say it's a... A dressing room with a few big characters in there. I think it was Ian Herbert, who's one of the journalists who was witness to this Diego Costa madness after the game the other day, uh, who made the point that five minutes in Diego Costa's company gives you an in that sort of a mood gives you an appreciation of how well the manager has done to manage that guy over the course of a season in which he's agitated for a move away from the club. Do you think that that that's the key to it? There's a lot been talked about with regards to tactics and all the rest of it that Conte has brought but actually it's his ability to to maintain a sort of um, stranglehold over guys like Diego Costa that's that's led to this success yeah absolutely I mean you know the, the, uh, uh, Conte is someone that is imprinted himself on that team almost immediately in a way that only Mourinho really has done at Chelsea before that um I think I think the Costa description was five minutes inside the padded cell of Diego Costa's mind. I think that was Johnny Northcroft, which right. I thought was a fantastic description. Um, also, let us remember that you know previous managers, uh, including Mourinho, on the second time around, had to deal with the with a squad that was aging, and there was a few figures around that had been around for a long time and had significant influence. Um, the what the thing that Conte managed to do is neuter the influence of both John Terry. And Branislav Ivanovic, two players that were influential. I mean, it's not not much of a secret that Ivanovic was very close to the owner, Roman Abramovich. He's now in Russia playing over there. John Terry is, you know, has pretty much had the the role of cheerleader for the season. Um, a role he's fulfilled before, of course. Um, and that happened actually in that, that famous game where he made that switch ten minutes or so into the game against Arsenal when they're three 0 down changed the formation and actually in one fell swoop actually ended the careers of both Ivanovic and Terry. And then he's got a new team and he's got players like Alonso, who I think possibly the most clever signing of the last transfer window and Victor Moses. And they're players that are his players and it's his team. And Chelsea have been a team built in the image of their manager, even if they weren't the players that he added. And, um, you know, there's a bit lesson there, perhaps for the likes of Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola, two managers who spend a lot of the season complaining about the fact that they haven't got the players to do what they want to do. Yeah, the other thing that happened over the weekend was the was that the relegation places were settled, and uh, ultimately it was Marco Silva and Hull who who filled that third relegation spot, and Paul Clement and Swansea managed to stay up. 
And uh, this prompted a, a little uh, piece by Martin Samuel in the Daily Mail. I just want to get your views on this issue. Um, Samuel's uh, little, it's its not the, the main column, it's a section of it, and uh, the little headline on it, I don't know if he wrote it, is Clement's Crime Being British. <laughs> and uh, so he explains, it, it's basically a point that, oh, Marco Silva relegated with the uh, whole Paul Clement keeps uh, Swansea up. Marco Silva uh, has apparently been linked with Southampton, Watford, West Ham, Arsenal, Clement, linked with nowhere. Maybe he'll stay at Swansea and maybe they'll get relegated and then he'll be another failed British manager. And if he was called Paolo Clemente, would things be different for him? I just want to get your views on that, uh, John. Do you think this is... Uh, do you, do you think there's something there in, in this argument? I mean, I know it, it always seems, I, I always, my skepticism is always kind of aroused a little bit when I hear, you know, um, English people complaining about being second class citizens in their own country um, in any field. But but is, is uh, Samuel onto something here? Well, I, th- I think one of the key stats that I heard yesterday was that a fair, there's a fair few changes made to the clubs down at the bottom. And the two clubs that made changes to English managers, which would be Crystal Palace with Sam Allardyce and Swansea with Paul Clement, they survived. Um, actually, we, we mustn't discount the fact that poor old Steve Agnew came in at, at Middlesbrough. But I think I think Martin Samuel makes a point in the sense that Marco Silva uh, was a manager who, uh, of course, there was the, you know, the Paul Merson outburst, which set a lot of people on uh, Marco Silva's side when Paul, you know, Paul Merson said, you know, how this bloke know anything. Silva's done a decent job at Hull, um, but in recent weeks, it hasn't looked as decent a job as his reputation, as, as high as his reputation had reached. I mean, I actually went to the Hull-Sunderland game last week, and that was a situation in which Hull, for the first time all season, were expected to win the game, and they completely bottled it. And they, they did not have it within them to you know to, to be able to go into a match with an element of superiority they panicked and that's the reason that they've gone down um clement is a manager who came in had some pretty instant success i mean there was a win at anfield um but then they went five games without without a single point i believe and then it turned it around whether that's anything to do with nationality i don't know um i think clement Actually, if you think about, will Clement leave Swansea? Well, no, I think that Clement, uh, I'm told actually that when Swansea signed Clement, they always intended to keep him, even if they got relegated. Marco Silva joined Hull with a very different thing in mind, which was to put himself in the shop window. He's only signed a contract till the end of the season. And hopefully if things went well at Hull, then clubs like Southampton, West Ham and so on would come in and get him. Going down has probably tarnished his reputation a little bit. But do uh, yeah, I think we can fully expect Marco Silva to be linked with those jobs should they come up. But, I mean, why do you think that is, Miguel? Is it because of a uh, prejudice against English managers in England? Um, or is there some other reason? I mean, you know, the one thing that immediately strikes me about the point that Martin Samuel is making is that this is really, isn't isn't this Paul Clement's first job, pretty much? I mean, he's only really been a manager for five months or something. You know, well, he, he previously, yeah. he worked with Carlo Ancelotti, I know, for any, any, and he's worked at Real Madrid and Bayern Munich. And, you know, so in that sense, he's got a lot of, uh, he's got a, a wider experience than a lot of English managers. But I'm not surprised that a guy who's only managed the club since January is not immediately being linked with, you know, the Arsenal job. 
Completely, absolutely. And the thing about, I suppose, Silva has, due to his start in the job, which was impressive, particularly in kind of how they managed even the, the League Cup um, against Manchester United, uh, there's just kind of aura around him. And that whatever's happening, that aura has lasted. And that, I mean, that's probably a separate debate about managers in general and how, how far a certain reputation, a certain point can carry you. Um, and I think it's also true that once, once you get to a certain level of management, you can stay in a certain circle of jobs for until you until you kind of get into a David Moyes situation and it's just kind of perpetual decline. But I mean, I think the issue with this with this debate in general is, was it's become so polarized now. It, 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 they're too extreme because Snooty is towards the English manager. But then on the other side, you have something that's been brought up a lot: how often we see the debate how oh, the English managers are getting jobs. Um, so you know, it, it's 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 like it's not out there to bat for them. Well, I, I think it's. To be honest, much more simple than that. I think English managers are getting, or British managers are getting jobs, as as we can see from the two we've mentioned that have kept their clubs up. But this is this is the fate of the Premier League, Premier League now. It's not really a British comp- or English competition anymore. It's just it, it's an international league that happens to be based in England. Hence, all these clubs want to want to employ like, exactly like with players, they want to employ the best available. You know, and put put their money on what what they think will be the best future. And as with players, mo- most of those don't happen to be don't happen to be English. There aren't too many English managers with the CV of of Conte of um of he, he, even the last winner of la- last season Ranieri. Given how he he was derided, uh, so I think I think it is much more simple than that. Um, is there though? There, there is a question here, and and um, there is something a little bit unusual going on here. I think. I mean, Rory Smith of the New York Times had had. Uh, uh, written some comments on Twitter about this uh, piece, and his point essentially was that managing a top club, you know, a, a club that aspires for, to European competition, for instance, or you know, to win a trophy, is a bit different from man, from managing a club that hopes to stay in the Premier League. It's kind of a different skill set, um, and there just aren't many English managers in the group that has that skill set. Where someone like Marco Silva, say, you know, uh, not a high profile manager, not a high profile name when he came to England, but he did have Champions League experience. You know, he'd managed in different countries. He'd managed big clubs in those countries. So he could say, well, I do have the experience of managing a club at this level. And Rory's point essentially was that if English managers want to break into that circle, go and get the experience abroad at different clubs. The, the only issue with that is that I feel if even if England, in England, the, the British managers aren't quite the second-class citizens they often like to claim they are. I do feel that around Europe, most uh, in most footballing countries in Europe, people think they're rubbish. And yeah. you, hear, you hear it again and again, you know. You, you hear it from, <clears throat> from, from coaches who have worked, you know, in Spain and, and Holland and Germany. They, they're reporting back that British coaches are not taken seriously in Europe. And that actually is a bit of a barrier to them getting the sort of experience that... Rory is arguing they need. We, we're not in an era, are we? I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, John Toshak, Terry Venables, Bobby Robson, I mean, even Steve McLaren, actually, relatively recently, went abroad and, and had success. Um, England, just as it struggles with footballers, struggles with coaches as well. Um, and Paul Clement, actually, you know, is is a special case because of the way that he's been out and worked in three or four different countries before coming back to England. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, if you talk to people at the English FA, they're well aware of this. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, soul-searching about how we can you know, make English coaches better, how uh, also they can involve you know, ex-players 
um, to to become, you know, if, if not coaches, then mentors to players. You know, even following the example of someone like Zinedine Zidane, who's a great player, who's also becoming a very good manager. We, we in English football don't really seem to do that. Um, there is a problem at, at the top of the English game. English managers like Sam Allardyce and Tony Pulis, who's Welsh, of course, they're managers that know to how to, to get to a certain standard in English football. Um, but as Miguel said, and I do agree with that, if you're looking to go to that continental next level, th- there is not that, uh, there's no resource of English managers to reach for, and that's why they don't get the jobs. On, yes. that, on that as well, actually, uh, I read Rory's piece on Corretiano, the Italian uh, coaching school, just on the, on the day when Chelsea won, I suppose, just because Conte had been there. And it was an interesting point in, I suppose, that I, mean, I think you, you mentioned how the, the English FA is so conscious of this issue. But also, the English FA seems, and I think like a lot of, I suppose, like with Ireland as well, maybe, but they're more, more than anything, they want to kind of instill and develop a football culture. But that doesn't necessarily always uh, run, it's not necessarily most conducive to creating the best coaches in that sense, if they're all wedded to a certain style. Because I think one of the points that was thrown up by the head of Cofferciano in that was that we're not looking to create identical coaches. They want to create managers that can think for themselves, that are able to solve problems. And it's, and it's meant that Italy has produced actually a wide range of, of, of different styles of, of very successful managers. Yeah, I mean, and those three managers I mentioned, you know, Terry Venables, Bobby Robson, yeah. John Toshak, they're all very different thinkers on the game. So, you know, it, it could be possible then. So maybe it is that problem of, you know, the identical coaches. There's a big difference between being a good coach and a decent manager. I mean, Steve Agnew, <laughs> we've spoken of before, you know, reputation in the game is very, very high. Someone who's highly rated by other professionals in the game. He's not a manager. That's the problem. And there is that problem between reaching from being a coach to a manager that's another thing that's not really addressed in the English game. And people, only people like Sam Allardyce seem to be able to carry that off these days. We're talking though about going to Italy or Spain or whatever. Realistically, unless you're, you've got a name like Gary Neville or, or Tony Adams or one of these big, massive names, you know, with very with no management experience necessarily, or in in some cases with with limited success, you're not going to get those kind of jobs. But why not go the Roy Hodgson route, for example? I mean, why are no young English managers going to manage Neuchatel Zamax anymore? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I mean, the things you mentioned, Tony Adams and Gary Neville, both of those jobs they got because essentially they're in business with the people who gave them the jobs. Tony Adams has been working out in China for the guy that now owns Granada and of course Gary Neville is in partnership with uh, is it Peter Lim I think it is who is the financier of the Salford City FC and also owns Valencia. So it's about connections and agents which actually is also that ties into the fact how certain managers end up at certain clubs in, in English yeah. football as well. Um but yeah, I mean, I do think that, that there probably are English coaches going out and attempting things in, in foreign leagues. But if you actually think about Roy Hodgson, I think Roy Hodgson left England in 1974, I believe. Um, and that was a time when the English coach had the highest reputation. And I think around the world, you would find coaches you know, at any, any, all points of the globe. But as, as, we just don't export coaches in that way. Um, and it, as I said, it's something I think the FA is trying to address. But the soul searching, and I think if you actually speak to anyone at the FA, they don't claim to have the answer. It is a real problem. Um, and, you know, as I said, just like footballers, we struggle for coaches and managers now. Yeah, all right. Listen, great stuff. Yeah. Aside, it is on that, though, I suppose, in terms of why they wouldn't leave. 
lo- a lot of um, all the international managers want to come to England precisely because of what the Premier League represents, precisely because of the stage it is, and I suppose as importantly as anything, the money in English football. So I suppose if you're an English coach here, why would you take yourself away from that? E- even though there is this argument whether they themselves going to face this inherent barrier in it. Fair enough. Listen, brilliant stuff, John Brun, Miguel Delaney. Excellent, thank you. Cheers. He agrees with plenty. Just it's always who's saying it. It's never what's actually said. Ninety percent of anything is who's saying this, and ten percent is what are they actually saying. So, the ninety percent in Giles' case is oh, it's that twat. John is the best football brain in the world. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. I'd never let you do. But if you're talking about the, the, the press, which you're talking about, have this you know, opinion of Guardiola, it doesn't necessarily mean that football people have. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. The press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, what can you, what can you do? You can't please everyone. You don't sound totally convinced, Ken, that England managers can go abroad. Um, well, they can. Well, well, well they're allowed. But there is, I do think there is a bit of a uh, an attitude that they're not, they don't know much. And it's not as though that attitude has just sprung up from anti-Angloism, you know, across the European continent. I don't really think that is the case. Um, I mean, it certainly used to be the case. I mean, we, we mentioned Rory Smith. I mean, he, he, he has actually a book on the the sort of waves of coaches that England sent out into the world. Um, it, you know, Why has it always got to be a foreign manager? It, I mean, it used to be an English manager. You know, this whole idea. The book is called Mister. You know, in, a lot of, in, in Spain and Italy, you'll hear People still referring to the coach as Mister because of this, the fact that a lot of them were English back, they were British back in the day, and they were called Mister This, Mister That, and uh, that's really the only <laughs> vestigial trace of this uh, one-time wave of of British influence, which obviously uh, stopped at some point. I mean, I think the the key point is the is as Miguel alluded to at the end, the the money. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like. If you're in England, you're in the you're already in the money league, and and I'm not just talking about the Premier League. Even the Championship is is a big time league, uh, and I just think a lot of them aren't really prepared to consider going elsewhere. And in fact, you know, Steve, I mean, Steve McLaren did it. Steve McLaren won the title in Holland, and okay, wasn't quite so successful with Wolfsburg, but it didn't really seem to do him any favors in terms of. You know this sort of job. I mean, he he ended he ended up doing the Newcastle. You know, I mean, his Derby Newcastle, but getting relegated with them. Um, it wasn't as though he really vaulted into the top sort of circle of clubs. You know what I mean? Although I I think it is still possible for them to do that. I mean, managers who have done a good job. You know, Brendan Rodgers was given a job at Liverpool. David Moyes at Manchester United. You know, it can happen if somebody does an outstanding job. I mean, the case of Paul Clement. I think he wants to show that he can kind of do do it for a bit longer and then I'm sure actually people would 
start sort of looking and saying, this guy Clement actually looks like he could be really good. And as we said, he has gone out. I don't know he hasn't managed teams abroad, but he's worked with some of the biggest clubs in the world, which would surely show any chairman of... Chairman, how antiquated is that? But anyone in charge of the top teams in England that this guy is willing to go out and actually has got a different sort of a skill set. Absolutely. I mean, to, you know, if you're... I mean, you've, you've got to be able to convince the players pretty quickly on your arrival at a club that this person knows what he's talking about. Otherwise, you're kind of... You're in a debt spiral from the start. The fact that Paul Clement has worked with players at Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich, uh, Real Madrid, has worked, therefore, with many of the top players in the world, you know, has has kind of learned from, their, understands their sort of expectations, how they train, you know, how they like to, how they like things to be, has got to be hugely advantageous to him in the future. But he also needs to have a bit more of a substantial managerial record than five months with Swansea. You know, he's he succeeded now in his primary aim, which is to keep Swansea in the Premier League. So that's great. But he still hasn't quite proved that he is... I mean, ultimately, he, he managed to win a, a slow horse race against Hull, who everybody assumed was were completely doomed from the beginning, you know? Like, that they, they had no chance of staying up. And he's managed to, to stay ahead of of Hull. So he needs to do a bit more, I think, before he starts getting mentioned in the same breath as, you know, Ancelotti, Mourinho, Guardiola, all these guys. Do you want to mention the Martin O'Neill, the latest Martin O'Neill mega squad that he's announced today? Any sign of Stephen Ireland? Uh, no, actually. Um, Stephen Ireland injured at the moment. What? Sorry, Owen just stole my line from when I came into the office this morning. But that's fine. That's fine, Owen. That's fine. There hey. are 38 players in the squad. <laughs> so Stephen Ireland is not in the squad then? Um, Andy Reid? Uh... Andy Reid, no. Andy Reid's, is that Andy Reid retired? <laughs> yes, yes, Andy Reid has retired. I, I wasn't actually expecting Stephen Ireland or Andy Reid to be in the squad again. Um, a 37 f- man... Former cause celebs for a few years. A 37-man squad, it was uh, it was advertised as, but eagle-eyed reporters counted 38 names. <laughs> so it's actually, you get a bonus, <laughs> a bonus man in there. It's like a bonus track at the end of an album. Who's the bonus player? Get who's number? Who's the thirty-eighth man in? Well, any any one of them could be man thirty-eight. Uh, we don't know. I mean, what's the news? I mean, when you've got thirty-eight players, there isn't really going to be much news. Um, it's like a lot of players have been called up for the Ireland squad <laughs> again. Shawnee McGuire, uh, people were hoping. I just have an idea that you know when I'm listening to news bulletins later on, there's. The, the newsreader in question will still have managed to come up with something to say. Yeah, but this is just well, anti. Well, this is just anti news. I'll tell you the news. I went along to the Aviva Stadium. For <laughs> I, <laughs> I rushed on to get there on time for an eleven a.m. start, uh, and even though I was sabotaged a little bit by my own failure to read the email uh, with sufficient attention from the FAI directing me to enter the Aviva Stadium by the main reception and not the usual uh, press entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, I still managed to get there in time, uh, 10.58 or so. Uh, and it was a steamy kind of day out there, Owen, as mm-hmm. you know. It was it was raining a little bit, but mainly it was steamy. It was sort of a tropical edge. But I was I was cycling fa- as fast as, as safety would permit uh, from the north side of Dublin to the Aviva through the, through the Docklands. Mm-hmm. Uh, arrived at the Aviva Stadium, and let's just say I'd managed to work up a fine sweat because mm. I was in a little bit of a hurry. I didn't want to be late, and it was a steamy day, as I mentioned. 
and uh, arrived there, and I was pouring, 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 pouring with sweat. Okay, okay, fine. Oh, God. Sweating is fine. Dead. Really bad. Yeah, really pouring, okay, yeah, just pouring, pouring sweat. And then I, um, and you know that if you've drunk too much coffee, you know, you mm. kind of feel a bit, oh, God, I'm sweating, I'm thirsty, oh, God. Anyway, I got there, I was sitting there, and uh, 11 o'clock, where's Martin O'Neill? He's sometimes a, a little bit late. Well, he's sometimes early. He has he has started these things early as well, you know. Keep ten, you guys on your toes. A ten fifty three start for an eleven a.m. schedule. <laughs> uh, five past eleven, not there. Ten past eleven, not there. Fifteen minutes past seven, not there. Twenty minutes past seven, not there. At about twenty five past seven, I stopped sweating, and at half eleven, I decided <laughs> I actually can't waste any more time on this, and left. Um, I mean, I was thinking, and I felt. I felt a couple of conflicting emotions. I was like, mm, should I have stayed? And then I thought, nah, I need to be honest. Unless, unless somehow that turns into the next Saipan situation back there in that press room, which I didn't think was really on the cards. I thought, no, I've, I've actually got other stuff to be getting on with here. I don't think Martin O'Neill would wait half an hour to see me. <laughs> and, and I thought, is that, am I kind of being, you know, is, is this just blatant neglect of my duties? And I thought, no, it's, it isn't really my duty. It was my choice to go and see this Martin O'Neill, 38, yeah. 37, 38 man squad announcement. I've been to a lot of them. They often haven't, you know, given me that much to talk about. And I, and then I thought, no, you know, nah, it's fine. If, if Martin O'Neill doesn't want to turn up till half an hour after the scheduled time, then it's okay for me to leave because I've got other stuff to do. So you felt good? I felt like Shirley Valentine on I felt like Shirley Valentine when she leaves her husband and goes to Greece, <laughs> and she says, she just says, "I'm not going to, I'm not going to put up with it anymore." I felt liberated. I walked out of there with my head held high. You're not in a destructive relationship anymore, Ken. No. You know, you're maybe educating reader. That's another one. Yeah, maybe in time, you know, there will be a rapprochement between you and the Ireland senior football team. But for now, I mean, you just you're all you're doing is redrawing. The, the parameters. That's all. Well, I just, I just, it's fine. You know, it's, let's it, go forward together as equals. But it's a voluntary, it's a voluntary thing. You know, the press conference at eleven. I was, I was all set for it, and um, you were prepared to give half an hour, and you gave that half hour. And then, That's all, Ken. you know, just, just good it, for you. It, it'd just be great if, if everything else could just be kind of set aside, and there wasn't anything else to do. But sometimes you know, just got other things to do. Top work, Ken. Thanks for, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks all. Thanks, Ken. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.